everyone. Welcome to yet another Cyber Divas podcast. Um, today we have uh, Karen Patel from the UK uh, talking uh, with us and uh, we are both going to work through some um, some thoughts we have around um, intersectionality, craft communities, um, and uh, issues of uh, race and gender in these communities, uh, particularly since Karen's work is centered around UK, we will be focused on the issues around uh, UK people of color um, and um, migrants uh, from the global south and stuff like that. So Karen, could you start us off by introducing yourself to the audience? Yeah, sure. Um, thank you for inviting me onto this podcast. It's a, it's a pleasure. Um, so I'm Dr. Cameron Patel. I'm based at Birmingham City University in the UK. And my work generally centres on creative and cultural work and workers, their experiences and inequalities and the digital in in the sector and as as you've mentioned my focus at the moment is on the craft sector and uh, as you introduced um in a in a really succinct way um my work is concerned with the experiences of women of color in the uk craft sector so i'm working on a two-year funded project with crafts council uk looking at how we could support a greater diversity in the UK craft sector. And one of the things that I'm interested in is how the digital could potentially help to support that by providing um, an online presence for women makers of colour and just basically just providing a means through which women makers of colour could enter the craft market, which according to Crafts Council UK's recent figures is still dominated by white makers and particularly in full-time craft occupations, white men. So there's inequalities there, There's which, you know, it doesn't marry up with craft heritage, which, uh, as you know, it comes from Africa, Asia, lots of techniques which from the women that I've been speaking to um, are dying out and there's a there's a sense of needing to preserve uh, some craft techniques and and yet that's just not, it, it, it just doesn't seem to be uh, apparent in, in the UK context at least in popular depictions or in online uh, depictions of craft which is tends to be very white, very uh, hipster orientated, associated, you know, there's shows over here like the Great British Sewing Bee, the Great British Bake Off, which are associated with uh, predominantly uh, sort of white English um, sort of twee, um, quirky um, type of craft, which um sort of dominates the craft market at the moment so what i'm 
looking at are some of the challenges that women makers of colour face in navigating the craft sector, both online and offline. So I've been speaking to women based in craft um, workshops and maker spaces around the UK, but I'm also looking at the online context, which is particularly timely given that at the moment, uh, particularly this year since January, there's been an increasing debate uh, on Instagram about racism in the craft sector, which really brings these issues to the fore in a, in a tangible way. And there there are a group of really influential women makers of colour from all over the world who are calling out racism in the craft sector using Instagram. And as is the case with anything on social media, there's a lot of backlash, there's a lot of whataboutery and all of this, which um, thankfully, Thankfully to me, it doesn't seem like it's it's stemming this tide of calling out racism. And that's what I want to do in my work as well, just bring this, bring these issues to light in academia because they're, they're just not being being looked at at all at the moment. Thank you, Karen. That was a very good explanation of your work. And I do need to, uh, I have a few questions that we need to flesh out, but I first need to um, clarify to the audience that Dr. Karen Patel finished her PhD in 2017, correct? Yeah. And uh, is now working at the Craft Council? I'm working in collaboration with the Crafts Council. Okay. So, okay. Uh, and so what I want to say in response to your introduction, and since this is a working through, is uh, also call out uh, and also to contextualize our conversation because when we put out a podcast in uh, digital publics as we are doing now it goes transnationally and goes global and it goes into various local contexts I do want to emphasize that even though Karen you speak about um, crafts and um, crafts uh, uh, coming through uh, histories from places in the global south such as Africa, India and um, and uh, various other uh, previously colonized by the British locations, you are talking about a very local context of UK geographically in that um, historically a uh, lot of populations and even cur currently travel. We are migrants, we are in diaspora, and there are layers of diasporas. And um, within these contexts, we carry with us different kinds of histories, personal histories, but also collective histories, whether they're in, the, in terms of our material everyday practices, such as craft and um, uh, languages and religions um, and so in uh, even though it seems like this is quote-unquote global uh, and transnational in one sense you're speaking of a very local United Kingdom setting of um, migrants uh, histories of migrancies and of people of color uh, the yes. other thing I want to point out uh, in relation to the particular digital publics you were referencing in Instagram is that even, uh, and I will continue because I will um, 
uh, I will say why I need these clarifications in a bit. Um, even uh, as it appears in the um, hashtag publics of Instagram say or on Ravelry as if the whole world congregates in these spaces, these uh, do-it-yourself crafters are mostly based uh, in the global north. Would you agree? Yes, definitely. Uh, and, and yes, we do see hashtag uh, 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 things like Indian knitters, for instance, from India, and hashtag they see knitters, um, which may include uh, knitters from India. But a lot of these knitters, uh, uh, knitters is a different kind of category yeah. than uh, when we talk about uh, crafts such as weaving, uh, when we talk about crafts such as spinning. And when we talk about those particular kinds of crafts in relation to, let's say, global south context, specifically perhaps India, or for instance, Indonesia, where I am working with some colleagues in, uh, and, uh, or if we are talking about even African contexts and other contexts, each context will have variable, not only gender dynamics, but also variable ways in which these are industry. They may not be individualized, do-it-yourself uh, settings as uh, portrayed in the Global North-based digital publics that we participate in from the um, as, you know, crocheters, knitters, as um, spinners and weavers and so many other crafters. Um, would you agree? Yeah, definitely. I think, as you've, as you've said, that my focus is the UK context and British um, migrants and women of colour. And, you know, as you've said, there'll be different generations first generation second generation uh like i like for example me myself i'm a mixed race and i had a very white western upbringing and you know everyone's experience will be very different so i think uh, it, it's really it's really important that you you bring up those points of the different contexts and and influences and uh, a lot of the people I've spoken to have spoken about their influences back home but as you've said there there's layers there'll be sort of there'll be different layers to it which uh, people accumulate through their upbringing their experiences at home and also the changing um like in the, in the case of fashion, for example, the changing fashion trends amongst diasporic communities and younger people in particular in the UK where there's a, I get the sense that people will just rather buy a sari rather than have it made, for example, just because it's that's the way uh, it's going at the moment. So... I think uh, the, this is where the work you're doing is it complements it, it complements uh, really nicely to bring in that uh, the global south and I think you were it's really important to highlight that online uh, indeed 
not everyone congregates there is very much still a westernised English global north space, the online space. And so the people who are able to express themselves on there and get attention and uh, build an online shop front are primarily from those particular contexts. And and that, that in itself raises questions about how effective these platforms could be for making different types of craft more available, more uh, visible and accessible online. Uh, I think, which is why I think for this particular project I'm looking at, it's important to, to focus on the UK context, mainly because I'm in collaboration with Crafts Council UK and we want to work together to put together some policy recommendations to help people um develop possibly develop not only craft skills but particularly most importantly digital skills and just be able to if they want to to be able to have the opportunity to make a living from their craft work if they want to because what I'm finding from my interviews is that people still do craft and in their homes and for their families but it may not be considered a form of craft in this in the sense that it's known in the UK uh, as this as something you can put on Etsy and sell and make a living out of Uh, with some of the people I've spoken to it's still considered a part of the home uh, uh, as part of as routine as cooking or cleaning so I think that that's something interesting that I'm thinking through as well in my in my interviews at the moment in a sense though um and thank you for your um elaborations I one one thing I want to clarify um about the point I was making earlier also is that um we aren't talking about um uh different uh, as as in um privileging uh, that somehow Global North gets discounted because Global South has a lot of uh, what would be known as subaltern communities of crafters, or we are not discounting the fact, um, um, I mean, the importance of even uh, middle-class communities uh, that are moving towards the kind of model of entrepreneurship that you spoke of. So yeah. there is no value hierarchy, value judgment. It is uh, my point was to clarify that these are different issues, and that sometimes in digital publics there's a conflation <coughs> of the issues, particularly because um, the uh, like as you pointed out, the online space becomes a space of um, startups and entrepreneurships and. We all begin to collide sometimes in these spaces, and um, different uh, different results emerge from these that are not necessarily completely desirable, or different hierarchies emerge. Um, so, but but in relation, let me get back to your specific work because that's a larger conversation, and I can keep uh, getting on my soapbox about that. 
Um, yes. and, and referencing my own research uh, over and over again, but that's not the point of this uh, podcast. It's about your work. So the point uh, uh, that you were trying to make, what is striking about the point you made about the work you're doing to make women um, in the domestic space uh, almost uh, realize the value of their work uh, in terms of if we may talk about the binary of productive versus reproductive, what has to date been considered part of the invisible reproductive women's labor zone? Yeah. Ha, is a, what, 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 what we are seeing is this, is this is in the present moment, uh, through digital publics particularly, there is a um, aspirational aspect to um, it's not just women, right? Any hobbyist who can think about trying to commodify and create monetary value for what might have been thought of as something that was just that thing they did back home inside the home space. So there's yes. this interesting kind of clashing of the digital, I would call the domestic, I mean, through the digital of the domestic, and uh, the entrepreneurial, right? And what you are exploring, and this is something that may or may not, again, work with equal, um, um, uh, let's say, equal opportunity in, in Global South communities, or it may, depends. Again, those nuances are nuances, they're complex. But what you are working to provide is a support structure to mostly women who would not have seen their um, crafting um, as potentially monetizable. Yeah, yeah. So um, as part of this research, I spent some time with some women who were from from a local community in in Birmingham where where I live, and they're mainly uh, migrants of Pakistani and Bangladeshi origin. They'd m- maybe been in this country for a long time, but s- still because uh, they maybe relied on their husbands to to work, they hadn't quite got a grasp of the language still, they didn't leave the house much. And this scheme that I went to um, work with the women on helped to teach them craft skills, uh, making jewellery. And this was in collaboration with Craft Space, an organisation in Birmingham. And what I found was that over the course of the, the 12 weeks that the women came to these craft classes, they uh, developed their confidence and expressed a desire to to sell their work uh, among their uh, communities initially, and some of them uh, were quite quite interested in in learning about online and and social media as well. So, I think it's as as you've said. I think over the course of uh, the what they were doing they realized the value of what they were doing they realized that they had skills and expertise like some of them you know they made clothes 
at home and, and realise that they had that those craft skills that could be appropriated into into making jewellery. And what in some conversations I've had uh, in academia, I get the sense that 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 that's not valid not necessarily in academia even but people from a certain craft background may be associated with guilds don't really see that type of craft as uh recognizable uh, as something that the guild would recognize so i find that uh problematic and probably at the root of a lot of what we've been talking about about how different craft skills uh, are more visible and, and more recognized than others so uh, you've you brought up a, something I'm, I'm really interested in and thinking about at the moment is how craft skills and craft expertise is recognized and valued and i think the the association of of craft with women's reproductive labor and the domestic space has a big role in how certain craft skills are valued and recognized and judged and that's something uh, i'm unpicking at the moment in something that that i'm writing exactly Uh, i mean just listening to you it seems to be that it's almost we're in a space of different histories colliding of um, industry of craft uh, when you speak of guilds craft guilds there's one particular there are different hierarchy it's a different hierarchy from when you speak of either academic or um, the uh, issue of uh, mainstream economics um, yeah um, because in both these cases uh, the craft guilds come from the history of um, traditionally uh, male labor forces, yeah. uh, historically um, looking at uh, labor movements and uh, looking at the entry of women into textile industries in uh, UK or, or in the US um, or in the Americas, would see that um, there was always this tension around the entry of a woman's body as a uh, laborer. Um, yeah. uh, the woman wasn't, correct me if I'm wrong, often the weaver. Um, and the transition of women uh, uh, from the uh, doing their uh, productive work as spinners from the home space to the industry public space mostly came about through the um, spinning technologies that moved spinning into uh, factories. And looking at all these histories, you find the the conflicted heteronormative family structures where um, in the the family, always the woman's uh, uh, income is welcome, but in the larger structure of the industry, men resented the fact that women were allowed to be there. Um, And I'm just simplifying a whole masses of history. Um, And um, so that's on the one hand, I would, I'm I'm thinking would be 
part of the culture of the guilds that you're speaking of. Um, and on the other hand, you are also um, talking about the fact that in modern economics, um, productive labor uh, is still, uh, or entrepreneurial work is still uh, gendered implicitly, whether or not explicitly, that if you were in fact working as a coder and you were female and you were working from home, that might be considered to be a much more legitimate form of working, however little you got paid for it, uh, then if you are a knitter who has your own entrepreneurial venture through something like Etsy. And I'm just throwing this out for discussion. So. Would you say these are different hierarchies and then these are what you're negotiating in the attitudes? Yeah, I think you're, you're exactly right. I think that comparison of coding with uh, knitting is really interesting because um, I, I think I've, I've heard uh, in conversation, I think I've seen it in, in academic writing as well, how knitting and crochet is not too, um, it's not too different actually to coding in terms of the the concentration and skill and knowledge that you need to carry it out. And I think, uh, so that was really, uh, it's really a good point that you brought up there because I think that sort of feeds into, it's, you know, it makes me think, you know, why isn't knitting considered in the same um, hierarchy as coding? And I think it's because of its domestic location and it's it's a feminine, it's a feminised form of, of work, whereas coding isn't uh, traditionally. And this is where the the concept of expertise um, really, really for me helps me to to conceptualise this because I, I argue in in my PhD which I'm turning into a book the book will be out next spring I argue that expertise is hierarchical it's masculine it's a masculinised quality associated with um, certain types of work, certain hierarchies of work and white masculinity primarily. And in the context of art and now craft, I, I work through expertise and, and what it entails in, in creative work. And I, I basically argue that expertise can be learned. It's a combination of skill and knowledge which you can appropriate into a cultural object but your opportunity to develop expertise in creativity is determined by your access to resources so education money uh, cultural capital all feed into this and i think the idea of expertise in craft is mainly associated with men and what they do. So Richard Sennett's book, The Craftsman, uh, goes through 
the time it takes, you know, the 10,000 hours to become an expert in craft. And it's, it's, it's a masculinized account, which doesn't really um, help us to think about the work that women do at home when they're creating um, craft objects through knitting, uh, textile ceramics and the work they put into that to post it online to sell it it's it's just so disconnected from that and and that therefore the idea of this masculinized idea of expertise just seems disconnected as well but it, it does involve expertise and every woman I've spoken to so far they have a level of expertise but it's just I think it just tends not to be recognised as such. And in terms of uh, cultural value and recognition of craft, I think expertise can help us to un- to unpick that as well and to, to think about, well, evolve skill and knowledge. And it's also... Uh, a reserve of the privileged as well at the moment. So this is something I'm I'm thinking through at the moment in terms of how well, how can anyone develop expertise or even just recognise their own expertise in, in creation. That's fascinating. Um, <coughs> sorry, am I going? <laughs> yeah, I was when you were talking about this again. I was talking thinking about several layers. I was thinking about how when you are talking about expertise and craft and masculinity, yes, it is very much so um, white male in in your context. And what is interesting then is how it translates into perceptions of how people of color should be portrayed as well. It's not just gendered in in the kinds of work you're doing. In that, this is where the imagery of uh, who the people of color who are legitimately crafters um, in inter plays into this, right? The imagery of the authentic crafter who is a person of who is who 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 is uh, not just a person of color but a person who looks like the subaltern person, there's a certain uh, image of who this person is, is often the woman of the global south. So, for instance, let me clarify. For instance, when you look at um, philanthropy um, ventures, um, the first image they will show is the subaltern uh, woman from... Maybe, I mean, the woman, I mean, when I say spoken, I meant uh, a particular kind of woman, maybe a rural woman. Uh, she has to be appropriate. I mean, she may or may not be that in real life, but the image of her, the, the production of her, um, as in need of charity, um, as somebody who lives perhaps in uh, what the mainstream of uh, progress would perceive as quote unquote that word, uh, economically backward, those are all in quotes, locations, whether it's villages in Africa, villages in Indonesia, villages in in um, India. Um, and so what that does then is 
is is is is that, and this is something me uh, thinking through some things as well. Um, it erases the possibility of the person of color, the woman of color, within a global north context, perhaps mm. uh, claiming a space of expertise. Um, in these modern techno-mediated, um, um, you know, agency and expertise in these modern techno-mediated entrepreneurial spaces. And uh, in that sense, then, uh, the comfort zones of even where what we are seeing in uh, places like the hashtag publics of Instagram, of mm. white women to generalize, um, who have been able to mobilize this entrepreneurial empowerment, so to speak, um, through uh, technological um, interactivity and entrepreneurship. Um, what I'm trying to say is that then um, the image of the woman crafter through domestic space, so to speak, in these digital publics um, seems to be an image of a white appearing, a white aspiring, a white woman. Mm. Whereas uh, when women of color are in these spaces, they are fighting for a space because their place, natural quote unquote space, and natural place would be to be in an economically quote unquote backward imagery. So, I mean, what I'm putting out there is that we're struggling with more than the gendered issue of can knitting be considered um, or can uh, crafting jewelry from the home space be considered to be genuine business. Yeah. But we're also dealing with the racialization of the uh, person of color crafter in global north spaces who, who seems not to have the authentic um, image that perhaps the person for the person of the global south might have in this larger imagery of what it means to be a crafter. Um, I might not have got this out perfectly, but I think I've thrown enough things out there for others to also take up, and things I might flesh out later in writing. But you, I think you kind of get what I'm trying to get at a little bit. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that the idea of fighting for space mm -hmm. is important, um, and something I, I'm working through in as well uh, in terms of. The conversations I've been seeing on Instagram, where several people have referenced how, uh, in the context of knitting, it's still a very white-dominated space. Uh, it always has been in terms of the type of, you know, the knitting that these women are involved in, in terms of uh, making it into an enterprise and they're fighting for space, they're fighting for recognition, they're fighting just to yeah, just to be, um, just to have their expertise recognised and not be judged 
by the colour of their skin. And it's unfortunately the women crafters of colour have to carry out the work of calling out racism and fighting for space, fighting for uh, equality, because as uh, Sarah Ahmed uh, notes in, in her work, you know, the people that do carry out the diversity work are the ones that don't inhabit the norms of the institution. And in the case of craft that I'm speaking about, that's the institution where wherein women uh, crafters of colour need to fight for space because they're just not, they're not, it's just so much harder. It's just to get recognised, just to be, just to not be judged or go through those extra layers of scrutiny that white makers just don't have to experience. Exactly. So what are you seeing in your offline interactions that uh, connects with what's going on um, at this moment in this global south? Uh, based hashtag BIPOC knitters of uh, knitters or a POC knitters um, or uh, any all those variations of hashtag BIPOC crafting. Uh, in terms of the people I've spoken to, uh, a few of them are, are aware of what's going on online. But I get the sense that in the U the people that I've spoken to in the UK, the ones that are working professionally in craft, that they have studios, um, some of them uh, are obviously quite passionate about it, and and they they're just like, yeah, you know, this is what this isn't news to us. This is what we go through all the time, and going into a maker space or a room, a knitting uh, or craft community, a fair, and not feeling like you fit in, not not seeing anyone else who's with with your your colour skin, um, just not feeling like you're welcome, not feeling like you should be there. All of those things have been spoken about in the offline context that, being expressed online exactly so what you're saying in the offline context the even for instance we had this discussion about local yarn stores yeah um, and we know some yarn stores are particularly focused on diversity but some are not no and that yes yes that came up from Australia, that came up from UK, it, it all, even in regards to the uh, fiber festivals, and it came up in the US. So, yeah, I, I think the, all these are fascinating points. And uh, since this is a podcast, and, and you know, as you are going to be contributing to the book that um, is going to be focused, that I'm going to, that, that I'm putting together. We, I think, are going to have a dialogue interlude, but potentially you may contribute something more. These are all writing that we are having in progress. Uh, but yeah. for this podcast, since, you know, I think listening spans maybe uh, 
limited, <laughs> although I yeah. think people pace out how they listen to podcasts. They go in rhythms, they stop now and then. I think people are in control, but still. Uh, for this podcast, I think we've gone to over 40 minutes so far, and I want to uh, make a note here to listeners that um, in the summer series of uh, Cyber Divas podcast, and even in the uh, maybe the uh, starting uh, podcast for the fall series, uh, uh, what you would have uh, heard is a focus on uh, directly addressing the questions of intersectionality, passing the mic, and digital publics. And it's possible that today, uh, in our conversation, Karen, we actually did not directly, I did not directly ask you the question of what does intersectionality mean to you, because we started out with actually jumping right in and talking uh, intersectionality um, and giving examples. And we didn't also, I didn't also directly ask you what is passing the mic mean to you or what do you think of that whole idea that's been going going on because I think we also simply jumped into the possibility of that discussion through hashtag publics and of course the digital publics were implicated right from the start. Um, so I am going to, uh, this is for the audience to, who are wondering how does this podcast then connect up with the rest uh, and the main theme of this Cyber Divas podcast. If you hadn't figured it out by list, when you were listening, all those themes are implicitly here. Um, but let me end with a question to Karen about uh, how Dr. Patel here mobilizes these theoretical concepts in her work, um, both in, in the actual community work that you do, as well as in your research. The concept of intersectionality. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's really, um, it of course feeds through everything I'm doing. I think when I articulate my work to people, I, I talk primarily about women of colour because that's who I've approached. But it's, I think for me, intersectionality, it, it encapsulates all experiences. Like everyone will have their own story, their own uh, background and experiences that make them who they are today and um i think um for my, like for myself i'm a working class mixed race uh woman who's uh under under five feet tall and gay so um intersectionality certainly is the prism through which i have always uh, viewed and lived my life so it's for me it's very um it's of course central to everything I do and consider in academia it's it's um it's very easy to focus on one characteristic or the other if if you're not careful so I think it's um it's 
of course it's it's central to everything I'm doing and I think as this research unfolds I'll be able to um think through class uh, sexuality identity uh, all of those things as as and when they arise uh, the focus at the moment is women of color because because of crafts uh, dominance by white men in the UK so that that was the the focal sort of that that's that's my way in but intersectionality obviously is the the prison through which I see I take in people's experiences and, and identities and how they shape their their way into a craft career that's excellent. Um, yeah, and the other thing that occurred to me as I was listening to you and thinking about the um, summer season of the um, episodes of Cyber Divas podcast and the ones I have in the works right now, I mean, I've recorded some and they will be um, edited and they'll come out. And I realized that while I wanted originally, and I still do, a large base of people willing to talk about these various intersections, because of the nature of my uh, research being focused at the moment with, with just having uh, got the book out on Indian, uh, gendered Indian digital diasporas, a lot of the people I have been speaking to are, are women um, somehow connected to uh, South Asia, either as people in diaspora or historically linked up or biracial as yourself. Yeah. Um, and uh, so what I have been learning is layered, as I said, different time zones almost of uh, travel away from the subcontinent and the issues faced along, uh, or, or whether in the sub uh, as in the subcontinent, issues along uh, race, caste, class, um, and uh, religion, uh, um, and uh, so what it occurred to me is that even with you, I have a particular um, location of someone both. Um, locally in the United Kingdom, but also part of this larger ethos of South Asian diaspora. And mm. while, um, you know, in general, I wasn't um, intending to focus on that, the very fact that I have spoken to so many of you who are somehow linked to this makes that an implicit theme. So I'm thinking if there was anything you wanted to say in regards to you as a woman of color, a biracial woman, and the histories of um, Asianness that connect up or don't connect up in your larger uh, everyday. Yeah. yeah. So as I as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, we had. Uh, quite a white uh, Western upbringing, but I've I've always been really proud that to have uh, an Indian heritage. So my dad uh, was born in Africa, 
but his parents were from India and they came over to the UK in the 1960s and he married my mum during that time and they um, they had a really hard time for my dad's family in terms of uh, acceptance of the marriage and it's uh, for me it was um, quite instructive to to hear those stories given that um, I myself am now sort of going through that uh, having a female partner and you know going about the world um, you you know the way my mum and dad did and and being um, frowned upon not being accepted Uh, so there's that but also um, I've always, I've all like we've, you know, we had a white western upbringing, but we always, um, you know, I've been to a lot of Indian weddings. Um, spend I, I spend a fair bit of time with my uh, my dad's side of the family, my cousins and and things like that. I'm closer to them than my mum's side. So in terms of that, that's that's always been an important part of my life. And upbringing and now working on this I feel like it's made me much much more aware of my own position my own makeup as a person uh, more so than ever before really because I think when I was younger well I'm sort of you know making friends with mostly white people at school college university I think it's easy to sort of not forget it, but um, it sort of may- maybe fades into the background a little bit. And so I think this work is really important because I find that when I'm interviewing people, um, they can see that I get it, I get their struggle. And I think that's, um, that, that's really bringing something to this research and it's what makes it really important for me personally and uh, something that I really want to um, I want to keep in touch with these women and see how they're getting on and help them because we have a lot of similarities uh, that I didn't even realise Yeah I was just listening to you and I realised how very um, how like several of the others on this uh, podcast series, the intersectionality of your very existence and uh, the ironies also of, um, um, you know, ethnicity and um, also sexuality in that um, it's highly possible and again, it's not an assumption I want to make, I want to make, but and uh, you would only speak as much of your personal as you are comfortable with. Just to be clear, when we mm-hmm. edit, if you want me to remove anything, you can tell me. Um, however, uh, one thing that was striking to me was um, that at the same time as you were expressing your perhaps comfort zones in in white appearing and white communities and then also connecting back to 
uh, racializing of South Asian presences. In the UK, you brought up the issue of um, the fact that you have a same-sex partner, and I'm just thinking in terms of uh, the, how perhaps the South Asian diaspora probably gives you more trouble over that than the larger white community. Yeah, well, I went to my cousin's wedding a few years ago with my partner and without really thinking about it, I introduced her as my friend because I just thought they won't understand. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I definitely, I think... And I was more anxious about coming out to my dad than my mom, but he's absolutely fine. Um, my whole family now know, and they're absolutely fine. It was just a, a perception that I had. And um, I think in some ways that does stem from friends of colour, male friends of colour, a group of them that I have that used to make... Um, jokes about lesbian women, and but that's a that's a completely different macho sort of thing that they used to do. But yeah, I sort of thought it's not quite accepted, so I don't think it's worth um, worth coming out at my cousin's wedding. I'll, and I just left it till till later on. But yeah, it's a really interesting point, definitely about the about LGBT uh, perceptions still nowadays. Indeed, it's very very complex. Um, yeah, and and the class comes in uh, in different other ways, no doubt. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and um, and this also feeds into the whole issue of the recent. <laughs> fiascos or the recent uproars um, that have happened around uh, a particular uh, white gay person uh, thinking of himself as the representation of hashtag diverse nitty, perhaps. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so this was a lovely conversation, uh, Karen, and I look forward to getting our writing done and moving forward with other projects, but... Um, thank you very much. Um, oh, thank you. you. It's been good. it's been it's been great to talk to you and talk through um, talk through these these issues. It's really uh, really helpful. I'm glad. I'm glad. Um, and and what what I will do next uh, is I will. Uh, this is all. I'm, I'm keeping this part in the recording, so you in the audience know the process. I will. Uh, send you the raw recording uh, where you could point me to uh, points where uh, you're uncomfortable with including and we could edit those out and then I will do the final recording and then only after you approve the whole recording will it get published. Yeah. Um, so um, in the long run, um, if I get somebody to transcribe it, we will have a transcription. But otherwise, um, this will go live. Hopefully, it, it takes as little or as much time as our back and forth thing takes. 
So thank you very much. Karen. Thank bye you bye. very much, Radhika. Yep, bye.